0: In today's market conditions, indoor farming providers are struggling to tell their story in a way that resonates with their current and future customers. And while most owners have strong expertise in operations and farming, marketing, and specifically social media, is usually left to a junior team member with little to no experience. Big opportunity missed. If your company has been struggling with social media marketing, AgTech Marketing Team can help. For an investment that's much less than what you'd pay to build and hire a full team, their team of specialists can provide support for strategy, paid media, community management, content generation, influencer, and email marketing. To learn more and schedule a free call, visit agtechmarketingteam.com. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ag tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast, wrapping up season nine with a bonus episode. Thanks for being patient. There's been a bit of a gap in the past couple of weeks as we've gotten everything ready A lot's been happening on our end. In case you missed the news, we have merged with iGrow News. I've always been a big fan of what Herb and Sepper and the team has developed with the iGrow News site and the incredibly informative newsletters that they provide on a daily and weekly basis. Sepper and I have been connecting several times over the past few events and as we continue to have those conversations it just seemed to make more and more sense to put our collective efforts to a greater use and do our part to help broaden the awareness and reach of all the things happening in the ag tech space so the website is agtechmediagroup.com we've got a bunch of new projects in the works you'll see some consolidation in some of the branding you'll see some references to the other properties at the bottom of the iGrow News publications. We've got several things in the works. We're working on a directory for the ag tech space, a revamped job board, and also looking to partner with like-minded media companies in the space as well. So if there's something you're working on and you'd like to have a conversation with us, please reach out. Sepper at igrownews.com or harry at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. It's been a heck of a year, a lot of incredible news in the space, and lots to be excited for as well. This week, as we get ready for Season 10, I've decided to replay one of the more popular episodes from Season 7. It's with Tristan Fisher of Fisher Farms. Tristan shared his background in finance, the evolution of renewables, and his passion for sustainability. And we talked a lot about his origin story the inspiration to launch Fisher Farms and his unique take on what's been happening in the space and where we're headed. And I think a lot of this information is still relevant and timely as we look forward towards 2024. So I wanted to give you a chance to listen to one of our more popular episodes and let you know that I'm extremely grateful for all the support I've received on the podcast over the years. It's been crazy to think that we're closing in on the fourth year of the show. So excited for season 10. If you have a CEO or a founder in mind that we have not spoken to or haven't spoken to in a while, please send their information to me, Harry at vertical We still have some room in our season 10 roster and we're excited to kick things off in the new year. If you're interested in sponsorship, opportunities are still available. And because of our new partnership with iGrow News, there's a lot more we can be creative with. So if you're interested, reach out to us for more details and we'd be happy to have a chat. Okay, one last big thank you from the bottom of my heart. For all our supporters and all our sponsors and all our partners that we've worked with, not just this year, but past years as well. And so before we jump into this uninterrupted conversation with Tristan, a few more words from the amazing folks that support this show. Whether you're starting up or scaling up, Indoor AgCon is the key to cultivating your business growth. Entering its 11th year, the largest trade show and conference for vertical farming, greenhouse operations, and controlled environment agriculture returns to Caesars Forum Conference Center in Las Vegas on March 11th and 12th, 2024, and co-locates with the National Grocers Association Show. The expo floor has expanded significantly to bring together even more new product resources and business solutions to explore. You'll also hear from top experts, including CEOs, growers, investors, and other experts during the full-scale educational conference. And don't miss out on valuable networking events connecting you with your peers, grocers and other potential new business partners as always i'm grateful for this partnership with indoor icon vertical farming podcast listeners can save an additional 20 percent off already discounted early bird full access conference pass rates with our promo code vfp learn more at indoor.ag so tristan fisher ceo of fisher farms thank you so much for joining me on the vertical farming podcast
1: thank you very much for having me
0: so for the benefit of the listener where are you calling in from
1: So, I Fisher Farms is based in the UK, and uh, we have uh, two vertical farm buildings. One, which is near Lichfield, which is just north of Birmingham, and uh, which is uh, northwest of London. And then we have a second vertical farm, which is currently under construction. Is actually being installed and fitted out at the moment, and that is just east of Cambridge and a place called Norwich in North. So, we have two vertical farms. And then we have a number of people, number of team members who are scattered around the UK for those who aren't specifically involved in farm operations. So we've got a bit of a wide uh, footprint for the various people within the organization.
0: So we'll get into the specifics of Fisher Farms. And what I'd like to usually do first was wind the clock back a little bit to get a feel for how you ended up here. But I thought I'd ask, since we are recording this in December 2022, if you could describe in one or two words what the year has been like for you and what if the holidays or, or this time of the year means a little bit of relaxing or, or if you have a chance to catch your breath.
1: So 2022 has been a big year for us. And the reason for that is that we've spent a big chunk of it under construction. So we were currently building, you know, have been building our, our second vertical farm, it's a, which is a really big building. It's a four-acre footprint building has about 25,000 square meters of growing space inside it, which makes it probably one of the biggest vertical farms in the world. And so there's been a lot of work on the actual construction, the external construction side, but there's also been a huge amount of testing, which we've been doing at various different locations. We've been testing of equipment at Farm One, the original site near Litchfield, but we've also been doing a lot of testing with all of our different suppliers and so forth like that to really make sure that when the equipment is installed, it actually works first time around because it's a big building, big farm, and testing, testing, testing is absolutely critical. So it's been a very busy year, and uh, we've been hiring people to, to work in Farm 2. So the team is getting bigger. And actually, later on this evening, I'm going to be joining Christmas party with the Farm 2 guys so to sort of celebrate all the hard work that everybody's been doing throughout the year. So you know, it's been a busy year, very exciting year, a lot of growth behind us. And then really, you know, when we hit the new year, all the equipment will be you know, finally installed and we'll start operating, generating food in the, the first quarter of next year out of the Farm 2 building. So that's exciting stuff. So you know, it's been a busy
0: year. Sounds like, yeah, I definitely want to get into the details of that. I was curious in doing a little bit of research, obviously, in a bit of your background, you got your start in finance, and then your first foray into renewables was the time you spent at uh, Shell. So can you, I know we're winding the clock a bit back here, but I just want to give, provide some context for the listener. Can you give a little bit of insight into, if you can remember, what things were like back then and where your interests started in renewables and sustainability?
1: So I think I should probably start even before then at university as a Cambridge university. And I did some research for Paul Hawken, who wrote a book called Natural Capitalism. And Natural Capitalism was a, was a fascinating book for me because it really sort of highlighted how if you want to do good in the world, you also need to actually be profitable and develop businesses which intrinsically capitalistic, so using you no know, capital to grow and having a business which is just purely a sort of charitable activity isn't good enough if you want to make a big difference. And so that got me thinking about, well, what could I do with my life which was meaningful and actually sort of develop in a way which could put my services to the best use of for sort of humanity as a whole. So renewables is a big thing. You know, in the mid nineteen nineties, when I really sort of started off career, and I was involved in some of the very early wind projects and then solar projects and so forth, and it was an era where climate change was always deemed as something which was going to happen in the future. It was a future problem, and we were trying to do things which we would help solve that issue. And really, over the last you know twenty odd years or so, climate change has shifted from being a future problem to a problem which we are actually experiencing today. And there's a lot of evidence to show that it is happening. And there's a lot of evidence which suggests that it will continue to get worse over time. And so as a result of that, a lot of my activity sort of started to shift over the last few years away from just how can you deal with climate change in terms of trying to prevent it into how do you live with climate change? So if climate change is actually happening, you know, what do you do in a world where it's the temperatures are rising, where you have very irregular weather patterns. So you can have a year where you'll have droughts and then you can have floods and then you can have cold patches and then you can have warm patches, all within a sort of you know six month, twelve month period of time. And that's very difficult from an agricultural perspective. And so I was involved in a project a number of years ago with a big food group in the UK called Bernard Matthews, which was which is a large turkey producer and a large chicken producer. And they are grown in large controlled environment agricultural buildings and we installed biomass heating systems into about 249 poultry sheds and that was very interesting from a sort of climate change perspective but also really got me thinking about food and how do we actually feed the world in a way where we can actually control um, all the environmental parameters and so for me the renewable side has been very much a link to what i'm doing in vertical farming and and actually, all of our vertical farms have strong renewable emphasis as well. So solar attached to them, batteries attached to them, you know, wind attached to them as well. So I'm using the old access for the renewables sort of supply chain in the vertical farming sector as well. So it's a combination of food and energy production.
0: Yeah, I thought it was really interesting, especially given how much experience you've had in renewables. You've also had some experience with wave energy as well in your time at Aquamine Power, if I read that correctly.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I've now been involved in a lot of renewable energies. And so I've been involved in wind energy, solar energy, wave energy, tidal energy, smart grid, battery technology, energy efficiency for steel mills, for cement facilities coal mine, methane recovery, so a very, very large gamut of renewable energy technologies. And so I've seen cost curves change and seeing how you can have a technology which starts off being very, very expensive and a technology which people go, well, this is never going to amount to anything. So when I was first doing solar projects, solar really wasn't a great technology. Wind wasn't really a great technology. It was expensive. It was intermittent. And if you move on to sort of 2025 20, years after from when I started if you look at in the UK now wind energy is the lowest the new wind energy systems which are coming on stream are the lowest cost electricity in the market with the exception of solar and if you look at solar you know, it's predicted that by 2027 there will be more solar installed globally than coal and so you've seen a huge transition in the energy market and the reason I mention this is because vertical farming today is a bit like solar and a bit like wind energy twenty years ago. It's an embryonic technology. It's really not good enough, but there are lots of hints about why it could be really fantastic. And so, when I look at what I'm doing, I'm sort of focusing on the here and now in terms of growing short leafy green things like most people in the market are, so salads and herbs and so forth. But ultimately where we need to be going as an industry, moving to crops which actually make a big difference. And so for us, we have a our phase one crops, which are short leafy green things, so salads and herbs. We have a phase two crops, which are fruiters. So things like strawberries and tomatoes, which yet again, a lot of people are doing. But then finally, it's the phase three crops. And for th- phase three crops for us, are rice and wheat in terms of carbohydrates, and then peas and soybeans in terms of protein. And so we've done trials with wheat, we've done trials with soya, we've done trials with peas. So we know we can grow it, we can know we can grow it at uh, at good volumes. But really the question is, how do we get the price point of those products so that they are also competitive with field-grown crops? And if we can do that, then you can feed the world. And that is extraordinarily exciting to be part of an industry which is transforming itself so rapidly. I have the faith that it can happen based on the practical experience that I've had with renewables where I have seen renewables technology go from not very good, very expensive technologies to massive, huge industries which are cheaper than natural gas, cheaper than coal, cheaper than nuclear, and uh, so it can be done
0: yeah it's really interesting all the experience you've had uh, some experience in aquaculture as well so it seems like you've had your hands smart batteries i think <laughs> was a little bit i saw some time there as well and all those pieces really are important in painting the picture for folks that are just getting acquainted with vertical farming and seeing you know a lot of people say it's a hyper it's a fad or it's something that's not sustainable and i think a lot of the arguments against vertical farming are probably ones that you experienced in the early days when people were talking about the the viability of wind, the viability of solar, even things like wave. And and are you seeing like those same sort of parallels in terms of the adoption curve, the hype curve, businesses getting a lot of funding and failing, you know, which is something we've now seen recently in in the world of vertical farming as well. And it's interesting because of your perspective and your background and your experience with these technologies that I'm wondering if, if you are seeing parallels in terms of people's response to it and also you know gauging where we are in that life cycle compared to what you've worked on in the past
1: i think that at fisher farms the real focus that we have is actually on producing products which are cost competitive with field-grown crops so our view is that if we can compete head-to-head at the same price point with field-grown crops then we should be able to sell our products into the market because as all of your Listeners and all the various speakers that you've had on your podcast will be aware of the quality that you get from vertical farming is just better than the quality you get from a field grown crop. It's tastier, has longer shelf life, uh, is more nutritious, has a lower environmental footprint. There's just a whole long list of reasons why vertical farm products are better than field grown crops. But the problem is that if your product is more expensive than field grown crops, then essentially, you go back down to the charitable act, which I was talking about very, very early on, you know, with the Paul Hawken analogy that you need to have product which actually is commercially viable. So you can actually use the profit incentive to do well, do more of the same, reinvest the profits, do more of the same, reinvest those profits again and again and again. So for us, focusing on cost parity is really, really important. and And I think that If you're a business which is focused on premium and focused on, no, wow, we have the most amazing quality, but we're much more expensive, then your market will always be smaller than it would be if you have a product which people just buy because it's cheap. And you could do a little bit of a premium product, but ultimately, people are worried about their pocketbooks. They're worried about how much money they're spending on food on everything they know on spending in general and so if you have a product which is the same price point you'll do well and so our focus as a business is always about price competitiveness and so although for example we know that we can grow phase two crops you know the strawberries and the tomatoes etc at the moment we know we can't sell those products at a price point which is competitive with field-grown crops and there are certain things which have to change in our business and externally that until those changes happen we will be too expensive same thing for our phase three crops so we know we can grow rice we know we can grow wheat we know we can grow you know soya beans and peas that's a fact but we're too expensive and we think that we will remain too expensive in those products for a good 10 to 15 years period of time but 10 to 15 years sounds like a lot but it's not it really is actually a very short period of time and yet again if you got the experience that I have in renewables, and I've seen the world change over the last 20, 25 years or so, I have real confidence that something which is too expensive now can be the right price point in 10 to 15 years' uh, time. And we have a, a pretty good plan at Fisher Farms to actually get ourselves down that cost curve from where we are now, which is too expensive, to where we need to be, which is, it's going to take 10 to 15 years to get there.
0: Yeah, it's a very helpful perspective for the listener especially for folks that are looking for quick results or are trying to turn things around in a time frame that's not reasonable and and obviously using the context of renewables and the experience you've had in the adoption curve for them earlier on i think people need to have a little bit more patience and i think sometimes in this environment it's hard especially when you're talking about investors investing tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars in some of these projects and are looking for profitability on a on a time frame that's not realistic, and I think it's helpful to have that perspective. I'm curious for yourself when you became aware of indoor farming, when it came on your radar, and it's something you started to pay attention to.
1: So it very much came on the radar around 2015, 2016 or so. So, you know, this was the point where I sort of, kind of came to the conclusion that there were a lot of people doing renewables and that the market shifted from being a very open market to a market which was getting increasingly crowded and it was getting crowded in the sense that you know first of all a lot of people were doing it but it was also the sense that it was never going to be quite enough to actually solve the sort of climate sort of crisis and as i started to think about what responses you could have for that i started to investigate the food sector in more detail and so one of the things which always struck me was how the population has expanded in over the last few decades. So my father was born in 1930. Uh, He's 92 years old now. And there were 2 billion people alive when he was born. And there are now 8 billion people. So four times increase in the population. But if you look deeper, and you say, look at the year 2000, there are a billion middle class people in the year 2000. And in 2020, there were 4 billion middle class people. Now that's an amazing accomplishment. It's amazing to think that we've gone from 1 billion in 20, in 2000 to 4 billion middle class people just 20 years later. And that's something which we as a human species should be immensely proud of that we've taken so many people out of poverty. But there is a issue associated with that as well. And the issue is that those 4 billion people want the kind of lifestyles which we take for granted in the West. So they want to have the salads and the herbs and the salmon and the stakes, and they want to go on a holiday, and they want to go skiing, and they want to do all the sort of the nice things which you know people get to do in the middle class. And that imposes a huge burden on the planet in terms of what it can sustain. And in the meantime, if you look at the agricultural sector directly, and you look at the two key things which you need for farming, one which is land and one which is water, if you look on the land side, there is less good quality soil every single year. And that's partly because farming techniques are very damaging to the soil. But it's also because a lot of places where they have good farming, as the urban population increases, a lot of those locations, which were once farmland, have now become cities. And so you know, if you look in China, you, know, you had a village of 10,000 people, then 20 years later, you've got 20 million people you know, living in fantastic agricultural land so that great farmland has been turned into you know shopping malls and roads and apartment buildings and stuff like that so the land is becoming a problem and the second issue you have is water so about 25 percent of all the world's food production comes from land which uses aquifer water for irrigation and in about 20 years time in most of the world where they have that type of system that water will be gone or will be unusable. 25% of the world's food comes from land where in 20 years time, there won't be any water. And so you've got, on the one hand, a massive population increase. And the second, you've got a decrease in the world's ability to actually provide food for that increasing population and that increasing middle class. And so there's a larger and larger gap which is starting to emerge. And climate change is really sort of putting fuel on that fire. So the fire already exists, but climate change just makes all of those issues worse. It makes it much more irregular, in terms of creating harvests and stuff so like that. So food security becomes a real problem. And so for me, as I was sort of thinking about, you know, what to do, figuring out how to actually feed the world became increasingly a strong motivating factor for me. So I started looking at things like aquaculture. So looking at how we could grow fish onshore so we could reduce the impact we have on the oceans, and then also looking at vertical farming. And the vertical farming side, I think was most exciting for me, or more exciting for me, because of the realization that everybody fundamentally needs to have carbohydrates. And so if you can grow rice and you can grow wheat, that's a major step forward. And ultimately, if you can grow proteins like peas and soy, that also allows most people to have a healthy vegetarian diet, and you could feed a lot of people in those kinds of systems. And to give you an idea, if you were to take you know, Fisher Farms building and make it three quarters of the size of London, so in London, there's you know, the capital, there's a Ring Road, which goes all the way around it. It's a motorway called the M25. And if you were to fill that area, about three quarters of that area, one just ridiculously large building, that building is enough space to feed 8 billion people out of it. So this is why vertical farming is just astounding. You know, the productivity that you can get out of vertical farming without needing access to lots of soil. And because vertical farming re- uses a fraction of the water of conventional farming, you can actually grow a lot of food in areas where they've got lousy soil, where they don't have a lot of water, and actually have a very productive system. So we think that ultimately, you no, know, we would want to be able to grow. And develop vertical farms in places like North Africa, where you can have bad soil that have very, very good access to solar energy. So you build ridiculously large solar farms with ridiculously large vertical farms. And instead of having those countries import food from the Ukraine and from Russia, you could actually have them produce their own food and eventually start to be able to export their food to other parts of the world as well. And so that's enormously exciting. And if you look at a world where you know, the alternative, a lot of people with not enough land and not enough water, that is a world of conflict. That's a world where people need to migrate on epic scales because if they don't, they will die because there's just not enough food available for them in their local areas. And so vertical farming has a very active role to play in this and a very hopeful and exciting role to play in solving this problem.
0: It's really fascinating when you paint that picture and you talk about the historical context and the impact of events that have affected us worldwide, like COVID, like the war in the Ukraine. And I think it's things that people take for granted that we were going to be able to continue our current trajectory without any impacts. And I think we're a large portion of the world is having that realization. I was recently in Dubai. And I think it's the numbers eighty five to ninety percent of the food gets imported there, and and it's just different parts of the the world have different challenges. We obviously saw an impact in terms of wheat production because of what's happening in, in the Ukraine, supply chain issues with what's happening. It's almost been like it's a big wake up call for folks in terms of really thinking through like where we source our food from and why it's important to have that as close to where we consume it as possible um, to avoid some of these issues. Because I think some people don't put the pieces together, I think, when they think about food consumption, access to food, the need for food. And when that's taken away, you do see things escalate to the point where, you know, countries go to war and there's conflicts arising. And when you look at the core issues related to that, you know, which if you have just highlighted, a lot of it is related to, you know, just maintaining day to day life. And that's when, when people, when that need, when that is threatened at a country level, it's a direct correlation to some of the conflicts arising. So it's interesting that you point that out.
1: It's absolutely true. And if you look back at the 2010 sort of Arab Spring in North Africa and you know going all the way around into from West North Africa heading east to Egypt heading north east again into Syria those were fundamentally caused by food issues where people were running out of food you know in Egypt you know, they were crying out know we want bread 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 because they just everything was just too expensive and you know if you look at what's going on now in, in you know as a result of the Ukraine crisis and the Russian crisis, a very large percentage of North African food comes from your Russia and Ukraine, and those a shortage of food. But the food that they do get is very, very expensive. In a world which is also extraordinarily expensive in terms of getting access to you know, fossil fuels and stuff like that as well, and so people are seeing a significant drop in income and a massive increase in their cost of living, and that creates strife. And so. If we can use vertical farming to actually help alleviate those issues, yet again, it helps create stability in places which historically have been unstable.
0: Yeah, so true. So for the benefit of the listener who may not know the origin story of Fisher Farms, can you give a a brief recap of how it started?
1: So I set up the business in late 2016, early 2017, and I I basically just wanted to see what I could do, so I, you know, made myself a hydroponics kit and uh, put it at home. And actually, I uh, tied the the lights underneath my wife's vanity table in our bedroom, and uh, had a sort of a card, you know, a, a, a plastic box with some grow plugs and some nets, and sort of a little aqua, uh, sort of fish tank uh, system, and just to see what could grow. And I was amazed that I actually was able to grow anything. And uh, so I thought, well, God, this is kind of interesting. It's, it's, it's actually possible to to do this. And then I sort of reached out to some people I knew to see whether they could help me actually turn that into reality. And so started off uh, with a shipping container and filled the shipping container, you know, designed a, a racking system with yet again a sort of vertigation system to actually produce all you know, the, the hydroponic system needed for a vertical farm. It was a reefer. So we could have fantastic control of the air in terms of humidity and in terms of temperature. And then I just grew a whole range of different crops, mainly short leafy green things, you know, your salads and herbs, but also, you know, grew things like stevia to to see whether we could do something like that as well. And yet again, got really good results. And uh, so I then reached out to some friends and some former colleagues of mine and sort of said no of do a friends and family round in terms of investment. And they could see that it was an exciting venture and they worked with me in the past. And so they thought, okay, we'll you know, put a little bit extra money in, help Justin out. We got some great results. And then we got the attention of a fantastic investment house in the UK called Gresham House who focused on ESG related investments. And they, you know, they've done a lot of, you know, stuff in the renewable space, social housing, forestry, and things like that. And so they could see the potential of vertical farming. And then they provided us the funding to build our first vertical farm, which was completed in 2019. And then also the funding to build our second vertical farm, which is currently, you know, it's built, and we're just fitting in all the the final bits of equipment at the moment before we start seeding in February next year.
0: Is this the first time you have the CEO role?
1: No, I my first CEO role was a long time ago. It was something like 2000. I think 2000 was probably my first CEO role. I had an internet startup then. I also was a CEO of a company called uh, Camco, which was developing projects in China and Russia using the Clean Development Mechanism, CDM, as part of the Kyoto Protocol. So a lot of energy efficiency projects there. And then I had... Another company called Lumicity, which I also set up, which was focused on solar projects and biomass projects in the UK market. So now I've been a CEO, been entrepreneur for quite some time. But I also like working for big companies. You know there's, I worked for Citigroup, I worked, which was a great company. I worked for Shell and Shell Renewables, and Shell was also a fantastic company to work for you know, great people, very well run, sort of a lot of excitement, a lot of potential while I was there. So no, I've worked in various different guises over the years, but I've been a CEO for quite some time now.
0: I can definitely relate to the benefits of working for a big company. I, used, I was in corporate for over 20 years. I worked at uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and at E-Trade as well. So it's nice to have the backing <laughs> of a big company like that. And uh, in 2015, I ventured off in, into becoming an entrepreneur. And once you start down the entrepreneur path, it feels like you can never go back <laughs> to working the regimented time. And you, once you have that bug bites, it seems like it's something that's going to be forever part of your DNA. How have you grown as a CEO You know, with the previous experience You have, and now in the time you've spent at Fisher Farms? It's a great
1: question. I think that clearly I've got more experience in terms of what to do, and I feel more comfortable and confident about how to run a business, how to manage people. People is sort of such an important component of of running any kind of business, and sort of how do you manage that effectively? I've clearly got a lot more experience in terms of working with investors and understanding why they want things. And and I think having my own. Personal investment experience, you know many many years ago. It, it also helps me to understand what it's like to be on the other side of the table in terms of those kinds of relationships. But I think that ultimately, what you're trying to do as a CEO is get the best out of your team because ultimately you need them because you know, they are the guys who are the specialists. They are the ones who understand lighting. They understand water systems. They are the ones who stand the technology. They are the other ones who stand the growing. So those are the guys who sort of the sector experts and i think that as a ceo you're trying to make sure that people know where you're going why you're going in a particular direction now the why is a super important component of of people's motivating facts you know why are we doing something what's the point so showing to people you know why we're doing something showing where we're going i think is important trying to get people to cooperate and actually just get stuff done trying not to have silos in organizations, it's quite easy to develop a silo and have a have your own team. And but you got to get people continuously communicating with each other across the various different parts of the businesses. So they feel that they're part of one company, rather than one subset of, uh, of the company. So yeah, lots of lessons learned along the way.
0: I think what's interesting is when you start a company and you're you're the CEO, you know, you have direct contact with the team that you're building with the folks that you've hired. Naturally, I, I imagine you you work with people that you know, that you've worked with in the past, that you trust and whose work you know. But as you start to grow, you start to have a need to develop more trust and faith in your team and your ability and your managers to manage that growing staff to the point where you know you can't, there comes a moment I imagine every CEO's life when, you start to not know who's being hired <laughs> and have trust that the team is being developed in a way that you know fits what your vision of what you would like it to be i think that's
1: so very very true and when you start off in the business when you speak to somebody that person has the single brain and has the single body to actually make that whatever happen. so you speak to one person you they say yes i'll go off and do it but as an organization gets bigger there is what I refer to as a distributed brain. So there's lots of people who are involved in that decision. And so each part of that brain needs to be able to communicate with each other effectively, but it's not just a distributed brain. You also have a distributed body because there won't be just one person who's doing that action. There will be multiple people who are involved in actually making that happen. And all of those people also need to coordinate with each other and understand why they're doing something and uh, and how do they actually need to cooperate with each other. And so I think early-stage businesses can get away with very, very few processes, and you can just get stuff done. But as an organization gets larger, you actually need to bring in process. And the trick is to ensure that you have the right amount of process, and not too little, and not too much. And so the sort of looking for the Goldilocks level Of process with an organization I think is very difficult and it's a challenge which I think all companies go through as they scale and you also have situations where you know people who you know started the organization develop and have different roles to what they originally had at the beginning and so ensuring that they develop in in the right way for themselves as individuals but also as for the company is always a challenge as well I think that Ultimately, one of the things that you're looking for in a business like ours is ideas and the creation of ideas. And I mention this because there is no real manual that you can just pick off the shelf, which says, this is how to be a vertical farmer. There's no, This doesn't exist. There are very few people who actually have vertical farming experience. So when we're hiring people, you know, we're generally hiring people who have very good sector experience in terms of what or I should say domain experience in terms of they're very good engineer or they're very good water specialist, but very few of them have actually worked in a vertical farm. And so, you're so as an organisation, um, you need to ensure that people are always putting ideas on the table and how to have and to learn and to cooperate and not to be frightened of putting their ideas on the table. So I, I always talk about bad ideas. So I say to people, look, my terrible idea, you no know, plus you no know, Harry, your really awful idea, you no know, plus you no know, Eric's appalling idea and Christian's dreadful idea. And they're generally bad ideas. They're not like we're pretending that they're actually good ideas, but they're just really bad ideas. But if you put all those terrible ideas together, they can create a, genius idea at the end of that process, something which nobody was expecting to happen. And if people are frightened about putting ideas on the table, then they won't. So if there's any sense in an organisation that people get slapped down for putting their terrible idea, they go, "Ooh, I'm not really sure I want to put this idea because it's an embarrassing idea, or what will people think of me, then those ideas don't happen. And that idea that bad idea doesn't combined with the other bad idea to create that beautiful, brilliant, genius breakthrough idea at the end of that process. So encouraging people to work together and actually put all their ideas together. And I think is a really important part of yet again, creating a culture within an organization. And I think that as a CEO, creating that culture is very, very important. Culture of trust, of openness, and dare I say, it, you know, of kindness and of love and affection know we want people to be nice to each other, to be good to each other because if they are nice to each other and they are good to each other, they're more likely to be able to cooperate and help each other out. and that's what it's all about really.
0: I love the fact that you brought that all together and then just this idea of being kindness <laughs> of being kind, uh, which I think is something that not a lot of leaders talk about. Is this something that you just learned over the years, uh, Tristan, or is this something that you've seen in other leaders that have inspired you?
1: That's a good question. You know, how different I am, am I now from 20 years ago? I mean, I think I've clearly grown, I've clearly developed. You know, I have you know, kids of my own, uh, so I have four kids. So I'm, I think you sort of become more aware of others and you become more aware of sharing and not being quite as selfish as you know, you're kind of force not to be selfish when you've got lots of other people to look after and stuff like that. So I think that being a parent probably really helps. In that process. But I think that ultimately, nobody really wants to work in a company where they got horrible people. No, like, why would you choose? So the way I think about it is that anybody who comes to work for me has to be good. Otherwise, they shouldn't be working for me. But if they're good, it essentially means that they can go and work anywhere else. And so effectively, they are volunteering their time to work for me and to work with me. And I don't mean volunteering the time as in they're not getting paid. because They're all getting paid you know, well. It's not a money thing. It's they're choosing to spend the most valuable resource that they have in their lives, which is their time involved in a project with me and with all the other people who are working alongside them. And so you want people to be happy doing that. And you know, I think that if you're happy, you're probably going to be doing a better job. And if you're doing a better job, you're probably gonna be happy and therefore you're gonna do a better job. And so it's a virtuous circle where the happier you are, the better you are, and therefore the happier you are. So that's the kind of culture which I think is really, really important to try and encourage within an organization. So you know, some businesses are just horrible places to work and they're backstabbing, they're mean to each other, and you know like, well, life is too short. Why would you want to why would you choose to work in that kind of place? If you're really good, if you're not really good, then you may have no choice, and that's unfortunate. But if you are good, you should be choosing to work with good people.
0: Very, very important, and it's something I think a lot of leaders don't talk about, but I think in this environment, especially with what's happened with COVID and people's realization, workers' realization, that they have opportunities now to work Anywhere they want and sometimes anywhere in the world. And, you know, remote work is not going away anytime soon. So now it seems like some of the the power dynamic has shifted. And I think people are aligning more with companies that fit their values and where they feel like they can contribute, but also that their time and their effort is respected and appreciated. And I think that's something you're alluding to, which I think is great so i wanted to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about the current product offering for fisher farms how that's changed from when you started to present day who you currently serve what the current offerings are and who the ideal clients are now
1: so in the uk market there's a heavy focus owned brands so i think that's something which is quite different from the u.s market where i think you know, brands are very very powerful whereas in the uk and you have a lot of supermarkets who have got very strong brands of their own, sort of the Sainsburys and Marks and Spencers and Waitrose and people like that of the world, who will have their own branded products. And so for us, it's really trying to make sure that we have, you know, we give our customers, you know, access to products which you know work for them, and having some kind of branding side on top of that. So, you know, Fisher Farms at the moment has spent, you know, most of its activity, um, in Farm One is now on research and development. So we've been retrofitting a lot of the equipment that we have in Farm 2 into Farm 1 to actually allow us to develop that technology to make sure that it works. And the reason for that is that Farm 1 has about 3,200 square meters of growing space and Farm 2 has 25,000 square meters of growing space. So it's a significant increase in terms of the size of the what we're doing. In order to keep our costs down, we spend a lot of time on automation. So, you know, I think there's a big difference potentially in the American market where labor is, I think, cheaper than it is in the UK market. So for us, you no, know, it's all about robots who are able to take products off the shelves, down off the racks, harvest it, do cleaning on an automated basis putting in the new growing material and then seeding it and putting all back into the overall system and so forth like that so for us if I look at you know what we've been doing over the last 12 24 months or so is a lot of ensuring that farm 2 goes live with the best possible technology behind it which has been tested and tested and tested and tested and tested because it's very hard to scale you know when we When I originally started the business, I thought I was just going to be able to buy things off the shelf. I thought I was going to just go and buy some lights and buy some racking systems and buy some shelves. And that really didn't happen. And that's part of where we are in sort of the growth cycle of vertical farming. And I think that's why you see a lot of different business models, but you also see quite radically different ways of doing vertical farming. So fundamentally, vertical farming is a variation on hydroponics on some kind of shelf with lights. That's what it is at the basic level. But the detail is actually really varied in terms of how people have chosen to do their irrigation, how they've chosen to do their lights, how they've chosen to do their seeding or do their harvesting, and stuff like that as well. So I think it's a bit like looking at early 1900s and the development of the automobile there were a whole range of different types of car shapes, sizes, how, where the wheels, where the steering wheel was, if you even had a steering wheel. You had electric cars. You had hydrogen vehicles. You know, you had a whole range of, of technologies until they eventually coalesced sort of a Henry Ford Model T sort of variation also. And then you had the sort of scale which you resulted and came out of that. So I think that you know, as a business, a lot of focus is on, getting our technology right. And sort of basically prepping ourselves for going to market in sort of February, March next year,
0: what's a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently,
1: I look at every single day, we have issues and problems pop up. And it's always a question of is this problem a today only problem? Is it a week only problem is a month only problem? Or is this an existential problem? And and you don't necessarily know at the beginning of the day what type of problem it's going to be. And so there's a level of, there's a huge amount of planning which we do in the business. So we're sort of predicting, figuring out what we're going to do, how we're going to get there. But there's also a lot of unknowns. And you know, fortunately, the more we do, the fewer unknowns there are. And the sort of the more repeats uh, businesses, sort of types of questions there are. So yeah, for me, it, it's really just doing triage of what kind of issues we have during the course of the day. I think the good news is that I've been entrepreneur for long enough and have encountered enough really bad issues to realize that actually nearly all bad issues can be fixed. There's very few things that can't be fixed. And and I think my sort of recommendation and sort of advice for sort of other entrepreneurs and other people out there is that you just gotta break your problems down into little tiny component parts and solve each one of those tiny little component parts. And before you realize it, you actually would have solved the really big problem by just dealing with all the little little problems bit by bit. And I think just have confidence in yourself that you actually can solve problems. And it goes back to the idea generation. Now, sometimes when we're faced with our hardest problems, we end up with answers which are significantly better than what would have happened had we not had those bad problems in the first place. So no, there's, and that's quite a great, that's a great feeling that you actually end up with a better place as a result of having a problem than had you not had the problem in the first place.
0: Yeah, there's something about, I think it's called you stress, positive stress. (laughs) And then that has this effect of forcing us into a mindset where we have to think more deeply about the problem. And to your point, come up with a solution that the end of the day something we would, we wouldn't have even thought of had we not been, you know, applied that pressure to ourselves. And I think sometimes we surprise ourselves with, with what's possible.
1: <laughs> it is, it's very surprising what we can come up with. And, uh, but that's yet again, back down to having a good team, and of a, having a good team who are happy to share and put their terrible ideas out there. And to recombine those terrible ideas into really good ideas. So and that's culture, really, as much as anything. Now, how do you create that positive culture within a business?
0: Coming up at the top of the hour, and I wanted to leave a couple of minutes, uh, as I've been doing now for these past conversations, given this audience, given that there's a lot of your peers that listen to this podcast, is there a message that you have for the vertical farming industry, for your colleagues in this space, anything that comes to mind?
1: I think that some of the vertical farming business have gone into trouble recently. And I think that my sort of just recommendation is that just keep going. And you know, work your way out through these issues, and you know. And ultimately, I think you're going to get through it. Certainly, the whole sector is going to get through this. You know, vertical farming is here to stay. It just makes so much sense. And any kind of short-term issues that people may have, I think, are ultimately going to be temporary. So I think just have have faith in yourselves and in the knowledge that this is a great sector to be in, and. You will figure out a way we always figure out a way
0: well i want to thank you for making the time to come on this podcast and for sharing your story i think the uh, the breadth and width of experience that you bring is really fascinating because you have had experience in so many areas around sustainability around renewable energy around you know creating and tackling these issues of food That shortages that we're having and it feels like you're well poised (laughs) to be in the position you are now it's almost like all roads in your career led to this moment and I think uh, what you're doing at Fisher Farms is really inspiring and I think it's helpful to hear those words from someone who's been doing this for a while for others in the space so I just want to really applaud all the progress you've made so far and you know wish you the best on this journey
1: well Harry that's very kind of you I greatly appreciate it and uh Know, keep up the great great work which you're doing in vertical farming podcast, and uh, I'm sure you're going to continue to get great guests on board. So well done, and it's you know, it's very interesting to to hear other people's stories as well. So thank you, Harry.
0: Thanks again for listening. As always, eternally grateful to my guests for spending that precious hour of time with me and sharing their story. As always, full show notes available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There you'll find summaries, key takeaways and resources mentioned, and also a back catalog of all our past episodes. Special thanks to our title sponsor, AgTech Marketing Team. If you or your team have been struggling to come up with a comprehensive social media marketing plan and don't know where to begin, reach out to them today. With expertise in strategy, paid media, community management, content generation, influencer and email marketing, their team can have you up and running in a fraction of the time it would take you to hire a full team and at a fraction of the cost. Learn more at agtechmarketingteam.com. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. To learn about the five key pillars of a successful podcast that every business owner needs to know prior to launching, visit fullcast.co and watch the free video. As a reminder, if you've enjoyed this episode or past episodes, do me a favor, leave me a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. Nothing makes me happier than to read those out on future episodes. And don't forget to tune in next week for a conversation with yet another fascinating leader from the world of vertical farming. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.